This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to AtomicBooks.com. Atomic Books, literary finds for mutated minds. And the first minute that I put the CD on, I thought, I felt like I'd come home. You know, I can't think of any other way to say it. It just spoke to me in some way that music hadn't spoken to me in a long time. I think I was getting quite bored of listening to the same old records. And, and, and I just fell head over heel in love with this record. Um, and it, they kind of became my favorite band. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. Alistair McLean, principal singer and songwriter for London's The Clientel, pronounced Clientel in British English, has fronted the band since their founding in 1991. Nine full-length releases later, they continue to make highly literate, delicate, and extremely tuneful art pop for a devoted following. Their newest record, I Am Not There Anymore, was released by Merge Records on July 28, 2023. The first song McLean chose as being formative for him was Dawn Chorus by Boards of Canada. So the first song is a song called Dawn Chorus by Boards of Canada. And I chose it because it's just absolutely gorgeous. It's so beautiful. Um, I suppose that I would start by saying that Boards of Canada are an electronic band from Scotland. Um, they're quite famous, I think. I don't know whether your your listeners will need an introduction to them, really. But... No, they, they won't. They're very well versed. Okay, in this stuff. good. 
Well, I was not interested in electronic music, really, at the time they were making this, or at least at the time they were making their first album, despite being really close geographically to where they were. I lived in Edinburgh, and um, everyone there was kind of talking about Rickenbackers and uh, Revolver and John Lennon and things, and that's what I was in, into. And, it, and um, so I was completely unaware of them. And when I, I kick myself for it now, actually, because um, not that I would have kind of shown up at their house or anything, but maybe they would have done something that I could have gone to. But it was much later, I moved down to London and uh, we needed to get a new drummer. And we got this drummer who was very technically good, uh, you know, and, and quite experimental. He was really interesting, kind of tasting music. And we were doing an interview for a Japanese um, fanzine talking about our favourite five records. And, uh, you know, I had like Love Forever Changes, blah, 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 the, the stuff you would expect. And... And he started talking about Boards of Canada. And I, I have no idea why, but I went and bought their CD. I don't know why. It must have been maybe their name sounded good. It certainly wasn't the way he described them that made them sound interesting anyway. But, um, and the first minute that I put the CD on, I thought, I felt like I'd come home. You know, I can't think of any other way to say it. It just spoke to me in some way that music hadn't spoken to me in a long time. I think I was getting quite bored of listening to the same old records. And, music has a right to children and and I just fell head over heel in love with this record um, and it they kind of became my favorite band and you know they've made quite a few records uh, over time the the track I've chosen called Dawn Chorus comes from their second record which I think you would pronounce Giogaddy or something Giogaddy I don't know um, uh, which is a darker record than their first one so people say it's more sinister and it's more um you know it's kind of like a bad the dream is going slightly bad it's starting the good feeling of the first record is starting to curdle a bit and and paranoia and ominous feelings are, are creeping in but this this song in particular is just so beautiful it's got a kind of uh a vamp on uh, a first to a fifth chord and there's there's a kind of um, a descending scale which is goes in and out of tune slightly in and out of tune uh, as if it was on a piece of videotape that had been stretched and then all sorts of subliminal voices come in and I just find it absolutely thrilling I, there's a bit where the voice says Mary 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 and I just think wow I feel like they hypnotize me I feel like that's what they're doing they've, they've got some kind of occult knowledge of frequencies or um, Fibonacci numbers and um, the things they put together are hypnotizing the world but it doesn't stop their music from being just so strikingly just gorgeous it's just beautiful music and and it doesn't have any words and it's made on synths so it, you know that was what that was my gateway to to listening a bit more widely than i was you know at the age of 22 23 so they've always had a really uh, big place in my heart the label they were on in britain called warp had a lot apex twinner on that label as i'm sure you know and um there's other bands like plone who are who are like, a bit like them but a lot more playful and silly and I love them too, you know. Um, it opened my mind up to f the ideas of field recording, of, of subliminal voices, of the, the interest in voices just out of audible range and what that can mean to a listener. I certainly took notes about that. 
and I enjoyed a lot of the other bands like Otecra or um, yeah, like you say Aphex Twin and it also was a gateway I suppose to things that were going on um, bef- like I say at the time when I was you know 1920 um, like drum and bass and jungle music and um, you know the more the more anonymous sort of um, but very interesting types of music that uh, were happening that was purely electronic and had nothing to do with guitars and I just gave myself a big kick because I realized how stupid I'd been not to listen to it at the time do you think that notion of sort of treated and ob- obscured vocals um, affected the production especially in your early records like singing through an amp not that you're those are the same thing in terms of like you know the voices that are completely subliminal but you know treated in a different way this yeah it, it what it did was rather than any specific trick or technique it was an overall approach you know uh that that really i found inspiring and that was to make to, to make music that sounded like memories that was that was the kind of aspiration that i saw they were doing and, and i thought i want to do that too and in terms of what they, how they did it, they seemed like wizards to me. I was like, I don't, I don't know how to make a beat. I've got no idea, you know. And I don't know how to 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 manipulate sounds in the way that they do. Um, but so those things, it felt to me like people must have thought, uh, you know, around Lennon McCartney in the sixties. They're like, they, they're wizards. I don't know how they're doing it. They just, they have some kind of supernatural ability. That's how I felt about them. Um, and still do to some extent, actually. Um, the creativity just fills me with awe. But it, it was that feeling of let's let's try and make music that that sounds like a memory, that sounds like something familiar, but you can't quite put your finger on what it is. And that's really fun and really cool, and um, and and a very interesting thing aesthetically. And so that's what I took from it. I think. Um, it was already there for me, but that gave me the confidence to really push it, I think. I guess everyone's memories are different, so everyone has different bands. But people say that Boys of Canada remind them of being a kid. They say, it reminds me of being a child. And I wonder whether that would just be our generation, where whether like broken videotape won't be so evocative to millennials, because they'll never really have heard it, other than in Boards of Canada. I don't know, time will tell, I think. For someone like me, who came from a very guitar music centric background I had such a deep kind of physical and emotional reaction to them immediately it wasn't like I had to think about it it was completely instinctual and so it's this there's something there and and I can't put my finger on it but um, that's why I chose the song because I love them The second piece of music McLean chose as essential to forming his sensibilities was You Set the Scene by Love. Walked on 
Second song is You Set the Scene by Love, Arthur Lee's Love. And um, this is kind of an obvious one, I suppose. Um, uh, but I have to put it in because I guess certainly in this country, in the UK, in common with many, many other people here, this has just been a, a lifelong love for me, a lifelong, almost an obsession. Forever Changes, the album it comes from. And I first heard it as a teenager and, and I thought they were Scottish because it felt like they had Scottish accents. Um, uh, and I can't imagine listening to it now and thinking that, but that's partly because every time I listen to it, it feels like a different record. Just Arthur Lee's voice is so gorgeous and the arrangements and the lyrics and even the bass playing is superb. You know, the, the, the drums and bass. But there's also, there's something about this record that's baffling. And to me, that's what kind of makes it immortal. Because it sounds specious. It sounds ridiculous. But at the same time, it sounds deeply true and profound. Um, and I've read people compare it to all sorts of different things. Strange kind of uh, comparisons like apparently there's a tradition or there was a tradition of kind of in new england of prophecy of prophesying uh quite apocalyptic prophesying and um they say that that's that's an, an analog or a parallel to to what goes on in this record they've compared it to the french writer Lautremont, who who wrote a book called maldoror which is kind of proto-surrealist book where he says something like nothing could be more beautiful than the chance meeting of a sewing machine and an umbrella on a dissecting table that kind of stuff um, I've, I've seen it compared to orchestral boleros but nobody can pin this record down, nobody can explain it um, and that's part of what makes it so mysterious so the, out, the song I've chosen is called You Set the Scene and it's the last song on the record where he wraps everything up I suppose and he gives kind of advice in this or, or makes statements in this Johnny Mathis voice with this kind of cocktail jazz, but very beautiful at the same time instrumentation where he says things like, all that lives is going to die. Um, and there'll always be some people here to wonder why for every happy hello, there's a sad goodbye. And again, it just seemed like sing song rhymes. But when you when you look at them, when you kind of like focus on them, they're almost, I don't know, to me, they're just so deeply, deeply profound. They're like Shakespearean almost, you know, and um, and it, it feels like there's so much chaos um, was around making this record that it almost, almost came together by chance. Like on a different day, it wouldn't have happened at all, you know. And um, I think that the... The, the beauty, the just the, the just the haunting element, the haunting plaintive kind of sound of his voice and the songs and the arrangements and the dread as well, the sense of nihilism and dread, and then the sense of nonsense as well. 
somehow in an unlikely way it just came together into something that that's so much more than the sum of its parts it's it's just a for me a baffling record but one that is uh just incredibly moving and and beautiful to 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 listen to and almost sometimes seems to contain all of life in it in in some magical way the the nihilism you know at, at your request i ask for nothing you give nothing in return if you if you're nice you give me water if you're not then i will burn it's chilling you know it's it, it it's a simple kind of nihilism and there there are more um perhaps more uh in depth feelings of nihilism on other songs in the record but the the way this one ends is it's got that kind of phrase i think it's a four note phrase that first of all the strings play and then the brass plays and then the strings play and then the brass plays and you do just feel like it's the whole world turning round i honestly think this i mean you know it sounds pretentious and silly but I actually sometimes feel that almost all human potential is in this record, you know, and, and I know that people who don't understand this record get very irritated by the extravagant claims that are made for it. But I say it really seriously. I mean, this record is, it will be a lifelong record for me. And it's, it's, it's the high watermark really of, of pop or rock music as far as I'm concerned. I'm sorry if you already answered, already said this, but how old were you when you first started listening to it? Probably about 16. I was going to ask a question of like what was going on in your life at the age of 16 that would have had you looking for something like this. But the fact that you were 16 answers the question. Um, I'm trying I'm trying to think if there is anything. I, I guess I will ask, was there anything else? What were you what was going on in your life at the age of 16 other than what one might expect? Well, I think there was a sense of a need to escape, but perhaps that's something that you would expect. I, I mean, I didn't grow up in a city. I grew up in a, in a little town outside of London. And it's funny like to look back on the days in the suburbs where I grew up, it's, it's easy to be nostalgic, but then I have to remember that every person I knew who had a brain wanted to get out as quickly as they could and go as far as they could. And you can't do that when you're 16, really. You do that when you're 18, you know, uh, in, in England. But so when you're 16, you're rehearsing it. And there's a sense that there's a wider world outside. And there's a sense that there are cool codes or, you know, there are things happening that you can potentially decode at some point in the future. And then everything will be all right. And this definitely formed part of that. I have no idea why, how I first heard it. I feel like somebody gave me a tape of it, some older person. Who would probably, you know, who would have said, I'll listen to the 13th for Elevators as well and a lot of the other interesting kind of psychedelic bands from that time. But um, yeah, it opened a whole world for me. It felt like that's the world that's outside. It's forever changes by love and I've got to get there as soon as I can. And the disappointment that it wasn't came later, but the potential and the feeling that it was there was is still very vivid with me. I think for me, I still sort of cling to that with some of my songs, some of my you know, the records from that, well, from when I was 16. And I still hope that those places that they represented where they were made will be like that. I even fool myself <laughs> into wanting to letting <laughs> that be. Manchester is actually one of them, which will sound so, you know, probably ridiculous to someone who lives there in, in, in the UK. But, um, you know, the Smiths records and Joy Division and New Order, 
I remember, I remember going to Manchester a few years ago with my daughter when we were looking at schools in the UK and, uh, you know, whether it was real or not, I felt it, you know, I felt that I did like I did when I was a teenager and I'm like, that's the place, you know, that's, that's the really good place. I live in the really bad place and there's a really good place out there and I've got to get there. <laughs> but I mean, no one in Manchester would think that was ridiculous, but anyone in London would, <laughs> would think it was... <laughs> I, but, just, I love that you've just explained something about um, regionalism to me <laughs> oh, without even explaining yeah. it to me in that way. That's fantastic. Beyond Video is a volunteer-run video library in Baltimore. Basically, an old-school video rental store reimagined with a 21st-century nonprofit twist. Beyond offers nearly 30,000 titles from every region, era, and genre of cinema on DVD, Blu-ray, and VHS, a collection put together by crowdsourcing disc donations from movie lovers like you. With no rental fees or late fees, members get unlimited rentals from the collection for a small monthly donation. Find out more about joining or donating at beyondvideo.org or when in Baltimore, visit Beyond at 2545 North Howard Street. And for a limited time, new members who mention Essential Tremors when signing up will get an extra month for free. Established in 1996, Royal Books is a seller of rare books and paper specializing in literature, cinema, music, and the arts. From Cassavetes to Ida Lupino, from New Wave to Warhol, you will find an ever-expanding selection of first editions, original film scripts, vintage photographs, posters, and 20th century Americana. Visit us online at royalbooks.com or visit our store on any weekday between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. The final piece of music McLean chose as being crucial to him was Living to be Hunted by the Moon by Michael John Fink. Okay, so this is the um, more obscure one. It's by uh, a composer called Michael John Fink. And he, he works with classical musicians uh, or classically trained musicians um, in a kind of conservatory recital type of way. So it's not got anything to do with jazz. It's not got anything to do with pop music, rock music. It doesn't really, as far as I am aware, have much to do with electronic music either. It's um, contemporary classical, I suppose you'd call it. Um, and he's based in, or he was when he made this song, as far as I know, based out in, in California, near LA, with a group of like-minded people. There's people like Philip Schroeder, uh, Marty Adams, some of the people who, they play on each other's records uh, and they release things together on a label called Cold Blue Music. I, and how on earth I heard about this record, I don't know. I think I read a, a review of it somewhere on a website. Um, 
actually I've got the quote because I took a little bit of notes and did some homework, but the, the review just said it has patterns of notes near and far heard and half heard. It's a, it's an astonishing entrancing album, careful and considered yet never too precious or conceited. And I think that kind of covers it. This song I'm talking about is a very long song called Living to be Hunted by the Moon, which is the most ominous song on the record. The other songs are more, are kind of more shiny, I suppose, more gem-like. They sparkle, but this is a very long, ominous, uh, tightly wound piece of instrumental music uh, with, with, with the same phrases that echo throughout. Um, and it's very evocative to me. It's a very cinematic piece of music. And when I heard this and the accompanying record called uh, I Hear It In The Rain, again, I had the same reaction that I'm describing to you about Boards of Canada. I just felt like this is my music. I feel at home in this music. I understand it. I didn't understand the chords. I didn't understand the, the, the harmonies or the, the, the decisions around orchestration, but I understood, I felt the music. And um, I've listened to uh, many of his things since. And one of the really lovely things about this is that when um, we were making the new clientele records, uh, there was a bunch of kind of piano pieces called Radial A, Radial whatever that Mark, our drummer wrote, and I had nothing to do with them, nothing whatsoever. Uh, but I really like them and um, they sound very much like this record I hear it in the rain and and I said to Mark have you heard that do you know that record and he, he hadn't he'd never heard of this guy but it was a beautiful coincidence that he was writing music quite similar um, and that, that I could put it on a record and put my name to it I was really delighted about that I don't really know how else to describe this music it's described as post-minimalist. It's a little bit like Harold Budd, but I found Harold Budd a bit feverish and a bit, it's a bit like being in a warm bath, whereas this is much, much more uh, tightly wound and focused. And um, it's like, a, it almost sounds like a music box sometimes. It's got that sort of sense of echoing mechanical um, uh, uh, phrases but they're played they're not sequenced they're not looped they're they're played by musicians and they're very they never puts a foot wrong as far as I'm concerned the notes he never uses more notes than he needs to but he always uses the right notes in the right place um, and it's a big inspiration for me I, I, I love it I love that I, I love that I can like something that's contemporary classical without feeling pretentious because I think it is quite um you could get, you know, it's quite easy to like. It's quite, what's the word? Yeah, accessible. It sounds a bit like Eric Satie, but but more modern. And there's no jazz feel to it either. It's very, I'm telling you all the things it's not. That's one of the things I love about it. I can't tell you what it is. So I would, yeah, it's it's fairly obscure, I guess, um, compared to Love or Boards of Canada. So I would just say to your listeners, give it a listen because it's very beautiful music. It's interesting that you say, uh, you didn't say this, but this is the way I feel sometimes. You feel guilty if it's a little too accessible, right? That's kind of what you were <laughs> implying. Where you're like, I want there to be a little challenge in this, a little, you know. Uh, and I, for me at least, I guess that's because I've spent a large portion of my life seeking out things that, you know, 
were, were pretty and I want something a little more, you know, that does have more challenge to it at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Another side, another side to this, of course, would be that you, I've gone, you know, through my life trying to find things that are challenging like Albert Isla or, or whatever. But if I listen to, uh, you know, a Rachmaninoff concerto or whatever he does, it, it means absolutely nothing to me. Like classical music tends not to move me at all. Whereas the more recent classical, which is theoretically less accessible and has less melodies than Puccini or whatever, I, I like that much more. So yeah, I know what you mean though. Um, when was this that you heard this initially? I guess I would have been about 22. So, okay, so it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. It stayed with me for a long time and I've listened to everything he's done since um, and and love all of it equally. Again, the approach... It definitely informed it. Um, the sense of being able to leave big negative space in in a song if you wanted to, and um, to not reveal the intentions, not not like Arthur Lee by giving two different clues at the same time that cancel each other out, but that the, the the sense of the ominousness of it and the enigmatic sense of it the feeling of luminousness that comes from it they were all things that I would aspire to and because I'm not someone who comes from like a, a you know a particularly you know I'm just come from an ordinary background sometimes you have to listen to art, artists who've done this to realize that it's all right for you to do it that it's like a, an approach that you can you can that it's all right to make music like that you can feel a bit more confident about it so this was one of those enabling cds for me that it helped me it helped me in um the way that i made music myself and that i owe a great deal of gratitude for This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>